is Matt Eady in Columbus, Ohio, and you're listening to Beyond the Box. Hi, I'm Rayburn Johnson. And I'm Steve Sensenick. And this is Beyond the Box. Here's your invitation to explore life outside the box of institutional religion. This is a place where there are no walls to restrict our search for truth as we embrace the ambiguity of defining our life in Christ. So unbuckle your seatbelt, recline your chair, throw caution to the wind, and get ready for the ride that is Beyond the Box. back <laughs> beyond the boxes back everybody it's great to be back with you you know sometimes you just gotta stir it up and mix it up and do something a little different so so there there's a crazy intro for you <laughs> today we are joined on the podcast by Derek flood who a lot of you guys will remember from a few months ago a podcast that we did from the wild goose festival um, Derek has just become a good friend he's just a really great guy he's an author an artist a theologian um, he writes for Sojourners, for Red Letter Christians, for the Huffington Post, and he's just come out with a brand new book entitled Healing the Gospel, which is 108 pages of absolute excellence. You guys need to pick this up if you get a chance. Great, great book. In the book, Derek really talks a lot about um, understanding atonement in light of restorative justice and understanding restorative justice as the heart of the gospel. Um, it's a real critique of penal substitution and really understanding the atonement in light of a God who is love. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. We just go a lot of different directions in this podcast, and I really, really enjoyed my time with Derek. I want to apologize up front. Um, something was going on with Skype when we recorded this, and anytime I would clear my throat or say okay or just about anything, it would cut Derek out. And so there's going to be a few places where you just kind of hear him fade out and then fade right back in. But hopefully you won't miss anything and you'll be able to pick up on what he said based on the context of the conversation. So I hope that's not going to be a distraction for you. But anyway, without further ado, let's get on board that roller coaster and let's head, in, head into Healing the Gospel with Derek Flood. All right, well, welcome back to Beyond the Box, everybody. It is great to be back with you. Today, I am joined by someone who has become a dear friend to me, Derek Flood, who we did, I guess it's been two or three months ago, we did a podcast at the Wild Goose Festival um, where we touched on some themes from Derek's new book, but we really wanted to, once the book was released, take some time to pick it apart, um, to pick Derek's brain, and just to let you kind of hear his heart in writing the book. The name of the book is Healing the Gospel, and I highly, highly recommend it. It's available from Whip and Stock Publishers. You guys got to get a copy. Derek, welcome again to the podcast. It's great to have you back with us, man. Thank you. It's great to be here. Derek, I'm really excited to get into, we've got so many good things to talk about, but you start out in the first couple of pages of the book, um, kind of setting up a conversation that for me introduces uh, why we need to rethink atonement. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the problems of penal substitution and about how to re-understand the atonement in a way that 
um, that reveals a God of love instead of a God of wrath. And I feel like your conversation really sets it up. So can you kind of just read that for us and introduce us to this topic? Sure. Yeah, it's it's a mock conversation that is sort of like a, you know, a 15,000 different conversations of evangelism all kind of like rolled into one. So here, here it goes. Um, you have to imagine um, me, I'm coming up and I'm trying to witness to somebody, share my gospel with a gospel track I got where they've said to me, I, I, have, I have this idea of I've, I've gotten saved. I love Jesus. I have this personal relationship with God. I'm so excited. I find out that God loves me and it's the most amazing thing ever. And I want to tell people about it. And they're like, oh, well, here, here's this um, thing you need to read to them. I'm like, oh, um, okay, that's weird. But all right, I'll read this to them. And then this is how it goes really badly, like this. Jesus died for you. Uh, why did Jesus have to die? Because of our sin. Well, what if we haven't sinned? Well, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. No one can keep the law. But if no one can keep it, how can we be blamed for that? Because the wages of sin is death. And so justice requires that you be sent to be tormented in hell for all eternity. That's awful. Yes, but there's good news. God has provided a way out by sacrificing his son. God kills his own son. Yes, that's how much he loves you. Why would that make anything better? Because it satisfies God's need for punishment. Sin must be paid for with blood, because without blood there is no forgiveness. I feel ill. (laughs) But can't you see that this is God's love and mercy? Don't you want to open your heart and let God into your life? I think I have to go now. (laughs) You just recapitulated like so many conversations I've had in the streets of the town in which I live. (laughs) Yeah, me too. But having those conversations led me to think, this isn't expressing what I know. Yeah. This isn't what I know. I know grace. I don't know this, this weird God that you'd be kind of afraid to go sit in his lap, you know, because he hates you so much and wants to destroy you. It's, it's, it's frightening. Mm, mm. You know, and the, and the thing is, it seems like in introducing that conversation, you, you talk in the book, in the first chapter, you talk about um, what you call the pre-gospel And how we, uh, and I've seen, you know, I've seen a lot of different ministries do this. I did it when I used to go do street evangelism and things like that. It's this idea of getting someone lost in order to get them saved. Um, And you really talk about the problems with the pre-gospel, not just related to our image of God, but how it gets us into this, into this cycle of self-loathing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it goes back before him, but I do know that it goes back to Luther. And Luther believed in doing this pre-gospel thing. He thought it was essential. And so the history of Luther is that Luther is someone who's struggling with horrible feelings of guilt mm-hmm. and, you know, and just really kind of self-loathing, self-hatred. And, and that's, that's his, his demon that he has to face, his problem. And he finds grace for that. And that's great. But, and, 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 to, and to go a little bit back to, you know, he has this, um, his, his mentor, Staupitz, I think is um, his name, and he's always saying to him, like, Martin, like, calm down. It, it's okay. Lighten up, man. You need grace. You're so down on yourself. And there's a story where Luther is, like, trying to administer communion, and just the thought of him having the blood and body of Christ in his hands, he faints, you know, because he can't wow. have pressure. So this he's Luther messed up, and Staupitz, even in that time, was going, dude, you need to like take a chill pill. You were just so intense, you know. But that's mm-hmm. that's what he, he was. He was he was a messed up guy. He was so racked with this guilt thing, 
And so when he discovered grace, this was so wonderful for him. It was just life-giving for him. But what he does is the equivalent of taking his prescription medication and saying, here, you eat this. And it's uh. poison to me. It's poison to somebody else. You know, if you have this problem, then the message that he has might be good. But and actually, even worse than that, what he does is rather than he's come to a point where he feels that he's unworthy and unloved. And he hears this message, which, which is, Martin, you are loved by me. I says God to him. I, I love you unconditionally. I I'm I'm your dad, you know, and and he wants people to get that, but he thinks that in order for them to get that, he has to make them feel as horrible and crappy and worthless as he does. And mm. so that becomes a pure gospel, telling people you suck, God hates you, God wants to destroy you, God does not love you, you know, you are an abomination. It's, it's it's abuse. That's exactly what it is. It is it is it is the words of an abuser and being told and, and it's not the gospel. The pre gospel is an ungospel. It's telling people really, really hurtful, horrible things about themselves. And the, and here's the thing. We we have problems already. Right? There's lots of things in our lives that that it, it's not like we're like, oh I'm perfectly fine. That's a facade, you know? Yeah. But the that when when people feel safe when people feel secure, then suddenly they open up and they're saying, they can tell you the things that they're afraid to tell other people. They can tell you about the hurts they have in their lives. They can tell you about the fears, the shame, the, the self-doubt, the mistakes they've made in that atmosphere of safety and love. But if you come at them and go, you have a problem, then they're like, no, I don't. And they get all defensive. They put their walls up. It's, a, it's, it's self-preservation, you know, so it makes sense. And so when people say, oh, people are resistant to the gospel, well, they're resistant to being accused and attacked. And so am I, you know, as a Christian, you know, 25 years later, I'm still that way. And who isn't, you know, but people, Hey, you're safe. You're okay. No matter what you've done, no matter where you are, no matter how far away you feel right now, no matter how screwed up your life is and no matter of a screw up you are, you are loved here. Then people are going to, people long for that. That's the gospel. You don't need a pre-gospel. The gospel is great all by itself and it's good news and people today want to hear that but what they don't want to hear is abuse and i really think that people like luther um you know john bunyan too he has this autobiography the autobiography of john bunyan and it's painful to read because the whole time he's like he's being he's he for example he will have a thought in his head he'll have a thought where he um says some kind of curse word in his head and then like you know something like uh i blaspheme you know god or what and then he'll be like, oh, no, I thought this. Oh, no, I'm going to go to hell forever because that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I just said that. And, you know, and it's so painful to watch. And, 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 and I think that there's people who are struggling with that, but that's not good. That's, 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 that's hell that's there. And that's what God came to save us from, not to give us. It's kind of, you know, that's wounding people to heal them, you know, not what doctors do. You know, you know, I'm I so identify with this. Um, I know that you you talk about in the book that that Luther and Wesley and Bunyan, you know, these guys are the fountainheads of evangelical thought and and belief and practice. And so, because they struggled so much with this, it really became an embedded part of evangelical of the evangelical outlook. And I myself have suffered from that tremendously. I mean, you give an example in the book about how Wesley, um, how, how he went from being a sinner 
to after he became a Christian and after he began to follow Jesus, that he would do a good work and feel worse about doing the good work than he felt about his sin before coming to Christ because he would all of a sudden have a moment of pride in a good work that he had done. Um, and, and that to him, it was like that was worse than the life of sin that he left. And, you know, I so identified with that, Derek. I can remember I can remember being on a worship team at the charismatic church that I was at 15 years ago. And I can remember playing bass on the worship team. And, you know, I, I was a pretty good bass player. And, you know, I'd get some licks going, some, you know, slapping down. And I was one of these, you know, I've got kind of a charismatic personality. And I like to dance and I like to play. And so many times I would go away from that experience just beating the crap out of myself about how I had how I had enjoyed myself instead of praising God or about how I had maybe I shouldn't have played that riff because it showed off my ability instead of pointing people to Jesus. And so I so identify with this mindset. And I guess my question to you is, A, it's a twofold thing. A, where did this come from? Why, why are we here? And B, how the heck do we get out of it? I mean, I think it comes from um, internalized abuse where, you know, there's this, if, if somebody, say a Luther or a Wesleyan, and we do kind of know from their history that they were abused. And, and honestly, back then, I think we don't quite appreciate how common that was to just mm. beat the crap out of your kids and to, to be verbally abusive because they don't, they didn't understand that kind of stuff. They didn't understand how how harmful this was. They would kind of think that it was good, you know, and this is a, this is a world where people get burned to the stake on a regular basis and get into sword fights. And, you know, this is a nasty, violent world and kids aren't thought of as, Oh, go play. They're little miniature adults, you know, from day one, right? They don't have the concept of childhood back then. And so it's a really hurtful world. And, and, and when these people write theology, well, guess what they think? You, you internalize it. If you are told by your dad or your mom, this is who you are and this is what authority looks like and this mean, scary thing, like wait till your dad get, comes home. He's going to take you out to the shed. You know, yeah. That's what the voice of authority looks like. You internalize that and you think, this is right and I deserve this. And, you know, and, and, and when that person then writes theology and then that shapes Western culture, that kind of has to affect us. Even if we nowadays, you know, we're never hit, you know, but, but still we have these like, you know, voices in our heads, you know, the, oh, you can't do anything right. What's wrong with you? Nobody wants to see what you did. You know, nobody wants to see your cool baseline, you know, show off, you know, and, and even if it's not our parents, geez, I mean, kids in school, wow, they're nasty. You know, yeah. the rule things they say to each other. So in a way, I don't know where it comes from. I mean, I can, I can make that little historical guess like that, but it's something screwed up about us i mean maybe it's hey it's original sin <laughs> you know it's, there's, there's something messed up about you know how mean little kids are to each other and the cruel things that you think like wow i didn't teach you that you know and i don't know i don't know but it's wrong i can tell you that it, it's to me it's just so bizarre how we can take it's like it's like we'll realize that god has gifted us you know we'll, we'll realize that we have either this gift of music or you know, in your case, a gift of writing or a gift of speaking or whatever, mm. and how 
through this strange sense of piety, the self-loathing disguised as piety, um, that we take a gift that God gave us and we make ourselves, we beat ourselves up more than if we had ever been endowed with anything that would be a blessing to other people to begin with. It's almost like the gift becomes more of a curse for some people than a blessing. And I, and I've always, until, until I read your book, in some ways, I thought maybe this was a tendency that, that I was one of the few out there that had, you know, you always think that you, that you're the only one, (laughs) you're the only case because there's so many times, you know, even in doing a podcast like this, sometimes, you know, you can get an email that's encouraging to you or whatever. And, and, you know, I'm so careful about telling people about it or about doing anything that kind of makes me look good, you know, because, because of a sense of, oh man, you know, I'm taking something away from God or even though I know better in my mind, yeah. I can find myself doing that, you know. Right. No, it's, it's, it's really hard. You know, the, the thing with the piety reminds me of, I mentioned a quote from Spurgeon um, in, in my book where he says, you know, I'm a worthless, you know, worm and unworthy of God's love and everything. And, you, and, and he says this thinking that, that this is a really noble thing for him to say and that God must be really, you know, I don't know. I guess you couldn't say God would be proud because he'd feel bad about that or something. But, but you know, it is. <laughs> damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, dang, I tried to get Darn it. Um, but, you know, it's, it, he, it's, it's basically intended to be a noble thing that he believes is pleasing to God's ears to have him say how worthless he is and how unworthy he is and how sucky he is. But any parent, if, imagine if your kid said that, you know, hey, I know that you think I'm crap, dad. I mean, that just breaks your heart. You know, if God is a father, that's so wrong. It's so hurtful. And, and we just know that that's damaging, you know, to think that about yourself. You know, and what ha- when you think about yourself, how are you going to treat other people? You're going to treat them like that, too. Mm. Mm. So good, man. I, I want to read a quote around this topic that really ministered to me in your book, but I also want to talk about it a little bit. It's a little lengthy. So you said the problem with the typical conservative reformed view of the atonement is that the New Testament concepts of fallenness, bondage, and the satanic are all left out of their understanding of sin. The sole players are reduced to man and God, and sin is conceptualized solely in terms of individual transgression. As a result, they are compelled to conclude that feelings of self-loathing must be God's will. In doing so, such theologians unwittingly end up giving divine sanction to self-hatred and abuse. And I just think, you know, I really, I, I thought about that. I'm like, we, we have been ingrained with this idea that our feelings of self-loathing are actually like a built-in mechanism that God gives us to keep us humble. And it's hurtful and it's yeah. damaging. And like you said, I look at my own kids and I think, my God, I would never want them having the feelings that I've sometimes had about myself in reference to God. No, absolutely. And you know, what's, what's messed about it, uh, what's messed up here is that I think that what, what's wanted is we want people to feel bad about hurting other people, right? And, and we turn that into, well, I'm going to tell you how bad you are and how awful you are. But what that does, of course, is it makes you become defensive, put up walls and not open up. Or if you internalize it like Luther, it makes you self-focused, 
that mm-hmm. it's all about me going up to the altar and me getting forgiven and again for the 15th time because I can't go for more than three minutes without doing some minor infraction that's going to send me straight to hell again. So I need to go up and go, oh, please, mercy, you know. And it's so self-involved. And what is needed is not that I feel bad, but that I have empathy, that I care about you, right? That's, that's a focused on, it's a relational focus as opposed to a self-focus. And empathy doesn't mean that I hate myself because, you know, the whole thing of like love your neighbor as yourself, you know, you, it has to be, you don't dehumanize somebody or make them feel like crap and then expect them to be especially empathetic because they won't be. They'll come into this little spiral of self-hatred and they can't see anybody else at all. So the idea is maybe good that, oh, I'd like you to have remorse, but the way they're going about it is so backwards and it's just, it's so simple. Hurting people hurts them. You know, it's, it's not hard to, it's not, it's not complicated. Mm, mm, so good. So true. You you talk in the book about the, and, and we've talked a lot on the podcast about this, about restorative versus, you know, retributive uh, justice. And that's a real cornerstone of your book and of your understanding of the atonement. And you say that restorative justice is not merely one theme found in scripture, but that it's actually the core narrative of the gospel. Can you kind of unpack that for us and, and help us understand why you see restorative justice as the central focus of the, of the New Testament especially? Well, I mean, really simply, it's just that the story of the gospel is a story of here we are on earth, we, we're sinning, we're hurting each other, we are hurt, we're messed up, we're lost, and God in Jesus comes to us and saves us. That's about restoration. That's about making things right. That's about fixing stuff, about saving, about salvation. That's the story. It's not the story of affirming, yay, sin, and I'm so happy that you guys are lost and poor and hungry and tired, and I, I did that to you. It's like, what? No. The, 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 the point is it's a story about salvation. It's mm. the gospel. It's good news. It's liberation. It's, that's, that's, that's what I mean by the gospel. In, in a way, it's not like a surprising statement. It's kind of like a no-brainer. It's, it's really simple. It's, it's a good news message about God coming and saving us and meeting us in our brokenness and need and rottenness and pulling us out. So, so many people are going to say that, that restorative justice and attributive justice, that they're really two sides of the coin of justice. I mean, they're going to say, well, yeah, Derek, you're right. There's, you know, that is the, that is the heart of the message if we receive it, that there's restoration, but then they'll point to certain interpretations of the book of Revelation and different things like that and say, but yeah, for a lot of people, there's going to be this punitive justice side of God that's, that's going to, you know, get them what they deserve. And, And you talk about in the book, how we have a tendency to read the Bible through this punitive lens. Once again, I guess this is, I'm delving into sociology, sociology, which is not necessarily either of our strength, but, um, but why do you, why do you think it is that we have this tendency to read the scripture through the punitive lens? Why is it that, you know, why is it that when we have these conversations about restoration, that there's always the yeah, but, and then we get this rebuttal of all these verses that people have a hard time seeing in any other light other than punitive or retributive justice. Right. So, I mean, the, the way that I would frame that is I would resist the idea that res- retributive justice is a biblical concept. I would say that judgment is a biblical concept. 
And judgment is retributive justice, but that, but the Bible doesn't call it justice. When the Bible talks about justice, it's talking about restorative justice. And when it talks about judgment, it's talking about what we call retributive justice. In other words, this payback, this punishing, that's judgment. And judgment is this consequence. So perhaps I am on that track of self-destruction, you know, and that's going to be the judgment that happens. But the gospel is about God saying, no, I don't accept that. I don't accept that you go there. You don't get to go there. I'm stopping this. I don't let my, I don't, I'm not going to let my creation go to hell. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm breaking in there. So the gospel is about God, the, God's justice, which is revealed in Jesus, is about God breaking that cycle and of, of judgment. And, and when, we, when we bring it in and we think that this is what justice is, that goes back to I, I, I really I don't know exactly you know where it starts, but I do know that it has a that it is really influenced by the fact that um, the people who were theologians during the medieval times for centuries were lawyers, and their understanding of law was basically the idea of uh, Roman crucifixion. You know, you're bad, so we kill you. You're bad, so we hurt you. And that was their understanding of justice. It's, it's like a war kind of justice. It's a, it's a violent payback kind of justice. And then we still have that today. You still have, you know, just listening to, to like the, the presidential debates, for example, you have both sides feeling the need to stress, you know, this like, well, if our enemies do something to us, then they're going to get payback from us. You better believe it. it's coming down hard, you know, because we wouldn't want to be like soft or weak or anything, you know, so it's, it's soft and it's weak to not hit back, you know, mm. and that's, it's so like self-evident to us. It's, it's ingrained in our culture and it's something that we're kind of escaping from, you know, but it's, it's, it's really strongly there as just this, this assumption. So when, what happens is that we have this, even with, with never being a church ever, it just, it's in the public discourse. Mm. You read something and you go, oh yeah, that I get that. And, 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 but whereas if it's a message of, of enemy love, of unconditional love, well, that's not such an obvious thing that you encounter every day in your life, is it? You know, somebody cuts me up in traffic and I'm like, hey, you know, I, that's, that's instinctual. I mean, heck, little children get that. They get the idea of, that's mine, hit. You know, you don't have to teach them what you do, son, is you hit them when they, they <laughs> box getting that, you know, but, but teaching them to share, that's something they have to learn. And so if you're talking about like having compassion on the least, um, loving people unconditionally, grace, these are hard things to get, so we don't immediately gravitate to it. So I think that's what it is. I think we're recognizing something that's easy, but we're not realizing that the New Testament is presenting those things as the problem. You know, in the, with wrath, the the like the the concept that that they had of wrath at the time, I believe, is the idea that God kills the bad people and we are the good people, and so God's going to kill all the Gentiles and yay, yay wrath. I'm hoping for wrath, and it's presented by Paul and others as, no, 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 people, this is not good. This is bad, and it's going to affect you too, and you're going to get this wrath too. We don't like wrath. We don't like this way. It's going to end up killing us. We need to be saved from this whole thing. We need to be pulled out of this whole system. And, and, but they, they think it's an affirmation of it, but it's really a critique of it. Mm. You know, you, you talking about kids, I like the way you said it in the uh, in the book. You said that, that uh, retributive justice is really it's preschool it's preschool morality. I mean, it's it it takes it takes absolutely no effort to fall into retribution or or, or to fall into punitive measures. I mean, that is so 
ingrained. It's so instinctual, but it's, you know, I, I can tell you just from, just from the podcast and the, uh, feedback we've gotten on all of these episodes on nonviolence, um, it's unnatural. You know, enemy love is unnatural. It goes against everything that we, that we, uh, embrace it goes against everything that's been ingrained in us from our from you know our dads as little boys telling us now you better never start a fight but you sure better finish one if you get into one you know from that to you know when we get older and we and we go to court and you know somebody like just as an example you know somebody like a Jerry Sandusky you know all I have heard about Jerry Sandusky and God don't let me please don't misunderstand me when I say this what that man did is completely evil um, but all, all I've heard in regards to Jerry Sandusky is I hope that man rots in jail or I hope, I just wish they had caught him earlier so that he would have longer to suffer in jail before he died instead of, you know, being close to 70. And, you know, I hear those kinds of things and that's our natural tendency and our natural reaction, but man, that sure doesn't look anything like Jesus or the new Testament, does it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. And it, yeah, I mean, I struggle with it too. I think we all do. I'm yeah. not at all immune to that. Yeah, I, I like the, what you said a moment ago about the New Testament actually being a critique of punitive justice. You said it actually presents it as a problem to be solved and not as a means to the solution. Um, it seems like with the way we've understood atonement, that we have we have thought that God was more interested in punishing sin than healing sin. Can you kind of give us a rundown of this penal view of the atonement versus maybe a more healing view of the atonement or or um, what you would label under the Christus Victor narrative um, view? Can you kind of can you kind of give us the give us the rundown of those two views and why they're so diametrically opposed and why uh, why we need to move towards the restorative view over that penal view? Well, I mean, I. I might be opening up a can of worms here so we can decide whether we want to like go into the can or, or revisit it later. But I'm always up for cans of worms, man. Come on. <laughs> so you have that idea of, um, you know, the, in, in Romans is, is the, the word, um, hilasterion and is Paul talking about expiation or propitiation, which are these really ginormous English words that nobody uses anymore. But what they refer to is the idea on the one side, expiation being the idea that, sin is removed or healed, and then propitiation, which is the idea of wrath being averted. So God's wrath, is, is, it, is it acting on God's wrath, God's anger, or is it acting on our sin by healing it? Those are, that's the question. And the basic, um, there's, and there's, there's two classic people who are arguing about that. There's, there's C.H. Dodd, who is saying that it's expiation, it's about healing, and that's what he's talking about. And he makes a um, linguistic argument for that. And he says that um, that in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, which is translated as this, this word helisterion in, in the Greek, refers to this idea of cleansing sin. And so therefore, Paul, being Jewish, that's probably what he's meant. He's, that's what he's thinking of. That's his paradigm for this, is the idea of... of um, salvation as healing. And it's an idea that's like all through the Old Testament. It's, I think it's really significant that in the Gospels, the word for um, save is sozo, and it's the same word for heal. 
And so and throughout the Gospels, we see it flipping back and forth where Jesus healed them, but then he also saved them. And, and that whole concept, and it, it also makes, it makes sense of the Gospels that his actions of healing were sal- salvific actions. It wasn't him kind of wasting time until he got to the point. This was his thing that he did. He forgave people. He healed them of sickness. And, and when he did that, that was him. And, and, and the way that they understood that, that was him setting people free from, from, from demons. You know? and, and, and I think that we can relate to that today when we think about like fighting cancer, you know, battling a sickness. We can think of how it could make you, it could just debilitate your entire life to be, you know, crippled and suffering. And, and, and so their, their concept of, of sickness wasn't like this medical thing where I, you know, biological, it's more, how does this feel? You know, how does it feel to have a mental illness that makes you just go into convulsions? It, it, well, it certainly feels like you're demon possessed. It feels like there's some force that's taking over my life and ruining my life. And, and so his action of salvation is about rescuing them from that, liberating them from that, setting them free. You know, that's this idea of salvation, this idea that's really connected with healing. And so, and so the argument by this guy, C.H. Dodd, is that's what Paul's thinking about. And then Leon Morris doesn't disagree with that. What he says is, though, okay, but Paul's talking about wrath in Romans 1 through 3, and, that, and he's solving the problem of wrath, so how does that deal with wrath? And he kind of thinks, checkmate you know, at that point. But here's the thing. It's really simple. The way that wrath is averted is by healing. You Mm. know, if I have a death sentence given to me by a doctor, you have three months to live, but then they remove the cancer, death sentence gone. Right? Because the problem wasn't me. It's not they're going to shoot me. You know, it's that I have, I have a disease. And if you cure the disease, then the death sentence goes with it. So God mad at sin but if sin is healed in us and cured in us, there's nothing to be mad about because God is the one with the problem. We're the one with the problem. So it's really about, and then that's the thing too. The, the thing that they get messed up here is, is not just the idea of, of justice, but the idea of mercy. As if I could say, hey, as if God would say, you do this really hurtful thing, but I'm going to forgive you because that's okay. Never mind. Well, no. If you're sick and you say, hey, you're sick, but that's okay, never mind, then, then the, the response is, what do you mean, never mind? I'm still sick. That's, I'm not better. You know? And, and if, if I hurt people and I am hurt and God just says, oh, that's okay, it's not okay. And so what needs to happen is that needs to be healed in us. We need to be restored and made into, you know, have a new mind and learn to love and be loved. And you can't just say it doesn't matter because it does matter. And so God can't overlook sin, but the way that, that doesn't mean God can't not hit you for it. It means it needs to be healed because it's a real actual problem. It's not just God's problem that we kind of are like, I don't know what God's problem is. He's sure is picky. It's a real problem that we really need to actually solve. And, that, and that's what God does. God heals the problem. God solves the problem. You know, um, you gave an excellent illustration in the book that I was just starring in my margin. <laughs> um, I, I just love this illustration. You were talking about, uh, for example, maybe someone that had smoked all their life. And so every time they go to the doctor, the doctor says, man, you got to quit smoking. You got to quit smoking. And finally, they develop lung cancer. When they go back to the doctor, the doctor doesn't say, uh, you know, I tried. I told you for 50 years. To quit smoking, you didn't listen, so up oh, death sentence, you, you just got to go home and, and die. Instead, it doesn't matter 
what happened in the past. It doesn't matter the fact that the doctor's given them 20,000 admonitions to quit smoking. He still treats them for the cancer and he still works to heal the thing that they ignored him about. And I just thought, you know, that's such a good illustration for what you're talking about. The fact that God in the midst of all this, that a, he never gives up on us, but even when we're, you know, up to our eyeballs in our own crap that God warned us not to get into that he still comes with shovel in hand to dig us out, you know? Yeah. I just love that illustration. You you talk about, uh, you know, since since you're kind of hitting on Romans, getting into the uh, Hillisterion word group and all that, um, you touch on what I've been intrigued by over the last years in the new perspective on Paul. Um, I've been reading more and more things on the new perspective on Paul, and for most of the people listening, they probably aren't familiar um, with what we're talking about when we when we say the new perspective on Paul or the new perspective on Romans and Paul's letters. Can you kind of just tell our audience just a little bit about what is the new perspective on Paul and how does it affect how we read Paul's letters, but especially Romans? Okay. Well, the way that we've read Romans is really through a Lutheran lens. You know, we've... Martin Luther had a certain way of, he read Romans, and he's, of course, struggling with this problem of thinking that God's wrath is going to get him, you know, that he's a sinner and that he needs to, and, and wrath is this problem that he needs to, like, escape by grace. And so he reads Romans, and he finds in there an answer. And, but what he's doing is he's reading it in his own context. And actually, I think that's great. And I hope that I can also look at the context of my world and say, hey, here's what I'm struggling with, and here's how I can read the Bible and find something that speaks to me, that's super to do that. But that's different than me claiming that that's actually what they were talking about at that time. And I kind of recognize there's the historical context, and maybe I'm like thinking, you know what, I don't really have much of an issue with circumcision laws and, and, and f- food purity laws. That's a total non-issue for me. But that doesn't mean that those parts of the Bible are irrelevant. They might have some parallel, but there's a difference between saying, here's what I get out of this, and then claiming that actually what they're talking about is internet usage. You know, no, they're not, you know? And so what the new perspective on Paul is, is just recognizing that and saying, look, Paul isn't talking to people who are struggling with the problem of, of, of wrath. He's talking to a, he's talking to a, a Jewish religious audience who are struggling with a very different thing. And, and there's lots of different perspectives on there's 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 a whole bunch. They, there's like this sort of school, but they don't always agree with each other because theologians never do. N.T. <laughs> Wright and James Dunn and, you know, a bunch of other folks. And um, I'm kind of in the, the James Dunn camp, although I have sort of my own spin on it. So I can give you my spin on um, what I focus on. And James Dunn focuses on other stuff, which... I agree with him on, but I, it's not, it's not the place that I, he focused, let, let, let me just ask you real quick, just as a parenthetical thought. So what you're basically saying when you said, um, when you said that they're not looking at it, we shouldn't look at it through a Lutheran lens necessarily. And, and you, you almost said this, um, that really they weren't struggling with a guilty conscience that Paul's original audience that we have, that we've interpreted Romans through, how to alleviate a guilty conscience. But you're saying that that, according to the new perspective, that is not at all the problem that Paul's addressing in Romans. Right. I would say that Paul is addressing an audience who wants wrath to come. Luther does not want wrath to come. Luther is afraid of wrath. 
and wants to avoid wrath, but his audience is liking wrath. And they are hoping that God will come. So it begins, Romans begins with chapter 1, where he talks about the wrath of God is revealed, and it's, and it's basically this whole story of pagan worship and how, and how, and how an abomination this is. And, he, and you imagine his, his religious audience being like, yeah, I hate those pagans. They, uh, they deserve all that wrath they're going to get. Woo! You know, and then in chapter 2 he goes, oh, but you're going to get it too, buddy. And then it's like this flip where you're like, wait, what? You know, and because I think it's something like, um, you know, where you judge, you set yourself up for judgment in the exact same way. And so it's, it's like this whole, all of a sudden, the, everyone's like hooting and hollering, and all of a sudden there's just silence in the room. And they're like, oh, wait a minute. And he starts talking about how, you know, the Gentiles, they do this stuff. And they fulfill the law, and you don't fulfill the law. And so they have a law in themselves that they're fulfilling, and you, total hypocrite, you know, you think you have the law, but look at you, you're just, you know, God's name is blasphemy among the Gentiles because of you, and, and, and it's getting even more quiet. And then he starts to, and he says, like, you know, as, and is there, um, you know, what's, what's the advantage then of being a Jew, right? So he's talking to Jews, right, like himself. And he's like, well, there's a lot of advantages because, you know, you have the very words of God and everything, but not if you don't follow them because it's not about having circumcision, you know, it's not about, um, and we might translate that today. If you take, um, well, like, give me a second. I'm going to pull it down here. Sure. Uh, we'll play some Jeopardy music as Derek pulls the book from his bookshelf behind him. This is the advantage of Skype folks that I can actually watch this in process. <laughs> so open to Romans here. And, for, and while you're doing that, Derek, I just want to, I just want to inform our audience sometimes on Skype, um, you get this thing where where you get cutoffs between the conversation. So you'll notice, Derek, that I'm probably being a little quieter uh, and waiting for you to, to get done talking and, and that kind of thing just because I don't want to cut you off because when I begin to speak it, for some reason, the Skype connection cuts you off. So we're, we're pulling back the veil here for our audience and letting them see the inner workings of recording a podcast. <laughs> um, okay, so I want to read this one time. Um, in the, the original, this is from the NIV, and then I'm going to kind of um, do a little experiment here, a thought experiment. So this is Romans one, uh, Romans 2, beginning at verse 28. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Okay. Let's put that into our own terms today. We'll do kind of like a Luther thing to it where we put it to our own terms. A person is not a Christian if they are one outwardly, nor is baptism merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Christian if they are one inwardly, and baptism is baptism of the heart by the Spirit. Hmm. Okay? And, and so what he's, what he's basically saying, so in other words, the reason I'm saying this is think about how shocking that must have been to them. Have him say that it's like it'd be as shocking as we said that to people today. That you know, it doesn't matter if you if you have the Bible and um, you know, and 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 know God's God's word and everything, and yet you don't do it. You might as well be a pagan. Whereas somebody else, you know, doesn't have it and follows it. Well, then they might as well be a Christian. That's that's what he's saying to his audience, and his audience is like mad probably at this point. They're like, what? Throw him out, you know? And then he goes in and he starts listing these sins. But what he's doing is he's grabbing from all sorts of different psalms. And the psalms in the original context are about the person saying, this person over here did this really bad thing and I'm innocent and you should punish them, God, because I'm righteous and they're, and they're wicked. 
but he uses them all, strings them all together, and uses them to then argue we're all wicked. So he's completely flipping around that whole meaning of of the original context of their idea of of wrath. And then he and then he comes in and he says, um, you know, why did God, um, in His foreknowledge, not come in in wrath? Well, it's because He was waiting for the time that is now with Jesus. And so it's and so it's it's setting up this whole thing of them saying we wanted wrath, and he's going, no, that's not what God's doing. God's doing this thing with Jesus. And that thing with Jesus is about this um, righteousness from God, this justice from God, which is restorative. So that's, that's the way that I, I read the whole scenario in Romans and um, the context of wrath and the context of the original audience. And what's interesting t- for us today is that it speaks to that problem of, 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 of violence, of, of condemnation, of us versus them, and of, and it's, but it's speaking to, a, it's, not, it's not saying, hey, you guys are a bunch of non-Christian sinners who want to go to the bars, and I'm going to tell you this message that you're going to get it. That's like what Wesley would have said in a tent revival, but this is called, you were a bunch of piously religious people, and you got it all backwards. And it's not the way that God's doing things. He's talking to them. He's talking to the Pharisees. And he was a Pharisee. He's an ex-Pharisee. It's an ex-Pharisee talking to other hopefully soon-to-be ex-Pharisees and trying to teach them about grace instead of about wrath. Wow. Man. That is so good. (laughs) So, I mean, it's it's like, okay, we have taken Romans and we have basically... We have basically gotten this idea that um, God is, you know, it's like the whole Romans one thing about, like, like you said, about the wrath and, and about how, you know, Jews are going to get it too and this kind of thing. And it's like, I don't know, the script for me has been so flipped in the last few years reading all this stuff, especially on the new perspective and reading your book. It's like we we have, we've gotten it completely backwards. We have completely flipped the script. Um you talk about while we're on Romans, you talk about how we've had this idea of justice, you know, and I know N.T. Wright gets into this a lot, that justice, you know, with, with restorative justice, that justice is all about retribution and therefore that God as judge, that what it means for God to be a judge is that he's impartial. But you say that according to this view, it's not that God, God being a judge doesn't mean he's impartial but rather it means that he brings about justice and justice is about fixing what's broken, making wrongs right and restoring what's fallen. Can you talk a little bit about that, about that whole, that the view of, of the judge that we've really messed up? Well, I mean, for one thing in the, the Hebrew um, concept of a judge and, you know, I'm not saying that like one culture is the right culture and therefore it should be the Hebrew culture as opposed to whatever other culture, but just, I'm just saying the idea of a judge in the Hebrew culture is impartial. It's an advocate for, for the vulnerable. So it's really about um, compassion and, and judging and saying, hey, this is wrong, you know, and, 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 and making that kind of judgment. And so um, it's that idea of a judge being impartial, I mean, I suppose it has some things that are good about it, but that's not the only way to understand what a judge is. Going along with that, you know, there's this whole there's this whole juxtaposition in Romans where you know you've got law and grace, 
And what we've really been taught, going probably back to that Lutheran view, I would imagine, is that, you know, law is all about um, the us being delivered from the law, is us being delivered from these commandments that can that can bring us life. It's almost like, you know, we're no longer under law, therefore all the things that God said in the Ten Commandments or all, you know, all these things, we're just totally free from all that, you know, yada, yada, yada. But you really bring out that the law, actually, really what the law is, the law equals retributive justice, and that grace equals restorative justice, and that God's true justice is about turning those sinners into saints rather than rather than just simply doing some sort of legal fiction wherein he he waves a magic wand and pronounces us justified but we're still dirty sinners who are going around breaking the commandments but instead that what he actually does to make us right or what it, what he does is he makes us right he doesn't just pronounce you're justified but he actually makes us righteous the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus can you talk a little bit about the law as retributive justice and help us help us reunderstand you know that galatians romans paradigm for all of us who have been so steeped in um, the grace versus law message as being more about, you know, moralism, that we look at the law as moralism instead of the law as retribution. How do you, how did you get to the place of moving beyond looking at the law as moralism and legalism into looking at the law as retribution? You know, and I don't think that's all completely wrong to think of the law as legalism. I think there's a lot of really helpful things in there because, I mean, as long as we understand there's a difference between saying legalism is bad and morality is bad, right? Because there's a, there's a tendency within Luther, Lutheranism as opposed to Luther. I kind of don't think that Luther would agree with this, actually. But Lutheranism oftentimes will get into this thing of, hey, I can just be a total jerk because Jesus forgave me. And, I, and actually, I, I'm not going to even try to obey the law or try to obey morality. Well, that's messed up, you know. And so, and, but legalism itself kills you know, and I think we all know that. And so there's, there's something that's good about that. And also a little bit because we're being so down on Luther here. And I, I kind of like Luther. He's, he's, he's sort of a jerk, but, you know, I think he's funny. <laughs> you know, it's good to criticize. Well, let's say it differently. I'm a jerk, too. And I'm imperfect, too. And so I want to acknowledge that there's a lot of good things about him and a lot of messed up things. It's not like, well, I'm sure glad I'm not messed up like Luther and I'm so perfect. You know, so there's this Finnish interpretation of Luther, which argues that Luther actually taught um, the, the Greek Orthodox understanding of theosis and the idea that, and, 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 I, and I truly think that this is what Paul taught. So, but what they're saying is that Luther actually got this, and this is just underappreciated within Lutheranism. Really interesting stuff. But what Paul says is he goes on from um, you know, his startup in, in Romans 1 through 3, to develop this idea of how we are righteous, and we are righteous by loving, and we love by being in the Spirit, in Christ, you know, in that way of, you know, canonic love, and that basically the idea is hanging out with Jesus helps us to be loving, because when you're around somebody who's loving and who's loving you, it makes you loving too, just like it's a, it's a parental modeling kind of thing. And so that's his idea of what salvation is. It's not the idea of, hey, no need to fulfill the law. I'll just skip all that. But Paul is basically saying the way that we fulfill the law is not by keeping these legalistic commands, you know, blindly, 
but by loving. We can throw out the whole law and just love, and that's all you need. You know, Paul says pretty much exactly that. And, but it's about getting in on the Spirit and having the Spirit moving in us and shaping us and transforming us into the image of Christ. That's his whole idea of, of salvation. That's where he's going with all of this. And that's, that's the idea of restoring through relationship with God that Paul's advocating, as opposed to the idea of the problem with the problem of, with the um, the idea of the law that I think that Paul's down on is he says that the law cannot bring life because the law basically the idea of, of and and what, I, what I'm talking about here specifically is the idea of consequences punishments you know it's the blessings and the curses you do the good thing and you get a star put in the refrigerator you do the bad thing and you get a spanking you know and or you get like uh, a plague that wipes out your knowledge and then we come and subjugate all your slavery you know. Um, something, something really horrible happens to you. The problem, though, is that that doesn't make you good, right? It bas- all it can do is you're exactly the way you are, and I'll just whack you if you do it wrong, but, but you're not a different person, you know? And what makes you good, actually, is being loved and shown and helped. And it, that's not, but the law doesn't have any power to do that. That's what he kind of says in Galatians. The law is powerless to bring life. It doesn't have this vivifying born-again, new creation thing that is in Christ. And so it, all it can say is, stop that, stop that. I said, stop that. And so it's kind of like a health system that just says, you're sick, and you're sick, and you're sick. And we're all like, thanks, you're right, we are sick. Do you have any pills? Um, I don't have any pills. I'm just diagnosing everybody. You know, but it, and, then, and the gospel is coming in and actually curing the disease. So the, so the law... It's basically like the, the, the reason that the law would be punitive is because all it has the power to do is to, is to recognize transgression and prescribe consequences or deliver consequences. So, so like you, you talked, you talked about James Dunn and, and I, you said in the book that James Dunn describes Paul's conversion away from religion that's characterized by violent hostility. So that Paul in being converted from the law, that what he's actually being converted from is not moralism, but he's being converted from that way of retribution, which says, when you screw me over, I'm going to screw you over. When you transgress the law of God, God's coming to get you. It's like there used to be a song on the radio. I think it was a country song years ago, a few decades ago, actually, that said, God's going to get you for that. That was, that was the name of the song. God's going to get you for that. And it's like, so when, so what Paul is actually, it seems to me what you're saying is what Paul's actually asking us to repent from in Romans is retribution that would say you're going to get what you deserve instead of grace, which says you get what you don't deserve. You don't get the consequences for your sin. And for a justice system that's built on punitive measures, that really screws over our justice system, doesn't it? And that's why maybe why it scares us in the church, because it's almost like, don't we, don't you think, Derek, that part of the reason this isn't taught, that this isn't talked about, I'm just going back to my days in preaching. I, I was an associate pastor at a church, and this is when I was really starting to get a hold of the unconditional love of God, the grace of God. And so every time I would preach, I'd get up there to preach. All I would preach about was the unconditional love of God. Somehow, whatever passage we were talking about, I always brought it back to the fact that God loves you whether you're here next Sunday or not. God loves you whether, you know, whatever. 
and, and God's got complete grace for you. And you know, I had people get, I had people going to the senior pastor over me behind my back because what all they could hear that I was saying was Rayburn was saying that we didn't need to love God, that we didn't need to do anything good, that we didn't need to perform good works, that Rayburn was saying we shouldn't be doing those things. That's so it's almost like there's this fear mechanism built into religion, which keeps us bound to punitive justice. Don't you think? Because it's afraid that if we really get a hold of the idea of grace and the, and the idea that we can be delivered from those wrathful consequences, that maybe we're going to take it too far and jump off the bandwagon. Yeah, that's, that's so sad. Um, and I guess it would be important to explain to people, you know, hey, I know that seems threatening to you. That's not what I'm saying. That's not the consequence of this, you know, but wow. I mean, I don't know what to say to that. That's just kind of, it's just sad that they would think that that's what that means and then therefore resist that. You know, it sounds like a classic kind of like, you know, you know this, this, uh, the, the novel Les Miserables with, with Javert and, and Jean Valjean. It just sounds like the Javert thing where he's like, you can't be reformed. This isn't right. You know, it's just sad. Well, and and I guess, you know, it, it goes down to, you really, you really begin to see someone's heart when the fear of judgment is removed. It seems like for the first time you're actually able to see your own motives. Because as long as there's this punishment and reward system built in, then you never really know if you're loving God because you really love him. It's I'm, I'm putting on airs of loving God because I don't want him to kick my butt. You know? I, I mean, yeah, exactly. I, I came in. Um, you know, I had like this classic born again experience when I was 14 years old, wasn't really raised in a religious home and everything. And I didn't have any concept at all of, of fear. And I just was like, well, why would and, like, you know, it's, you know, I did typical things that you did when you're in high school, you know, bad stuff. And nobody had to tell me to stop because I was like, why would I do that when I have God? Why would I want to do any of that stuff? I was hiding and running by doing those things. I, you know, I wasn't trying to be bad, you know, I was just trying to self-soothe, you know, and why would I do that? I don't need to. And so nobody had, and, and nobody said to me, oh, if you better not or else, I'm like, what? You know, and, and also the loving other people, it's like, well, how can you be lo- treated with such grace and not respond by wanting to treat everybody else with that same amount of grace? I mean, it just seems so obvious to me. And yet I know so many people who have been taught this kind of this fear thing. And what's really scary is when you remove the fear from them. Sometimes they leave. That, like you said, that's all that was holding them there is that fear. And maybe I, all I have to say is I, I hope that that journey away might lead them actually to Jesus. Even if they think they're walking away, that journey away from there, they might come and, and find Jesus on, you know, in, in their place where they run to. Because I think in some ways they're, they're leaving the, 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 the messed up religion religion, you know, and... I hope that they can find a way to find the real grace of God, but it's, it's scary because, you know, I, Derek, I, I really think I, I really agree with you. I think it is better to live out of your heart for good or for bad than to remain tied to anything, even God himself out of fear. I think it's almost like it, it's almost better to follow your heart into the life of the prodigal son where you're really you're really being genuine with where you're at than to stay bound to the father because like the oldest son 
because of a sense of obligation or fear. Right, and that's that's where trust comes in for us too, is that trusting people that God's big enough to handle that, you know, but yeah. that's, it's hard stuff. Yeah. You, you talk in the book about and this, this was really, I thought great. Um, you talk about this, this, um, view that we've had of Jesus as the perfect law keeper and really how messed up that is and how that, that is actually one of the cornerstones of the penal substitution doctrine is that Jesus was the perfect law keeper, but you say that Jesus was the perfect lawbreaker. Can you kind of unpack that for us and tell us where you're going and, and how, how you see that playing out? Yeah, let me, let me come back to um, the thing you said about Paul um, earlier and James Dunn's quote about how Paul was um, you know, escaping from a religion um, characterized by um, violent zeal. And I, I want to stress really strongly there that that does not mean, that should not be understood to mean that Judaism is a religion of violent zeal, and he became a Christian, which is this wonderful religion, because Paul continued to think of himself as a Jew his whole life. And so this is not about one religion versus another religion, but it's about recognizing the potential in any religion or in any system to mess up, you know? And so I just want to clarify that first of all. But, you know, Paul... Thank you for doing that. that I think that's, that's an important clarification. Because honestly, with a lot of our history, it's, it's us Christians who have the problem of being the violent ones. So we need to look, you know, take that huge log out of our eye before we're looking for specks in anybody else's eyes, right? So, um, so Paul, you know, says that he's the greatest of all sinners, right? But and you kind of and I, I initially thought like, oh, he must have a drinking problem or something, you know, and because you know, that's sort of the classic sin, or he must cuss a lot, you know. But then Paul says, I think in Philippians, that he is as far as legalistic righteousness faultless, which is a thing that makes every Lutheran like drop their jaw. Like wh- what you, how can you claim that? You know, but he's like, basically Paul's like saying, Oh, I have no problem keeping the law. I kept it completely perfectly. Every letter of it. And yet he's the greatest of all sinners. And where he says, and when, and, and what he says there is because I persecuted the church of God and I was a violent man. That he identifies as his sin, not going drinking with the boys or having a potty mouth, you know, or whatever. But basically being toxic religion, religion justifying hurting other people. And that led him to, I think when he says that he blasphemed the church, what he means is not that he said bad words, but what he means is that he missed what God was doing in Jesus. He missed what the Spirit was doing right in front of him because he, had his, he has his books in front of him. He's like, this is what the books say it's supposed to happen. And he misses, but this is what God is doing right now. Mm-hmm. And that and was hurtful and violent. And that's, that's the thing that he repented of. And then you compare that with, with um, so in other words, here's Paul, the perfect law keeper, and him saying, my perfect law keeping, he calls that rubbish. And it says that was worthless crap, because look what it did to me. Look where it got me. It got me to be the worst of all sinners, actually. And then compare that to Jesus, who the gospel writers portray. Now, I, don't, I think that they believe that he was holy and perfect and sinless, and I also think he was holy and perfect and sinless. But the way that they portray him, as he was seen, his reputation that he had was he was called a blasphemer. He was called a devil. He was said that he was demon-possessed. He was arrested as a criminal. He, um, by, the, you know, by the political and the religious authorities at the time, he was basically characterized as a lawbreaker. 
And that was the reputation he had. He's a reputation of being the friend of sinners. That's like saying, for us, saying something like the friend of terrorists. You know, it's not a compliment. It's, an, it's a definite insult. He's, because sinner is not a, oh, isn't that cute term? It's, that's a bad term back then. That's a condemnation. And so if he's the friend of sinners, they are not saying, oh, how noble of him. They're saying, like, he's hanging out with the riffraff. He's getting in with the bad people. And he had their reputation. He had a reputation of making himself unclean when he... You know, according to the law, you touch someone who's unclean, and now you are defiled. Well, what happened to your holiness just then, if you're defiled? I mean, by the strict understanding of the law, he just was defiled. He's no longer holy because he touched that woman. And I think, though, that what he's doing is flipping that around, and, and, and the way that I would take that is, no, he's so holy that his, his goodness, his holiness is a contagion that unsicked her, if you will, you know? And, and so... And, but but he but he's but if the whole the whole idea of God cannot be where there's sin. I'm sure you've heard that before, right? You know the Lord cannot. Oh yeah. Do his whole life is hang out with sinners. So if Jesus is God, that's exactly where God is. Is right where there's sin, right in the middle of that. And what's happening is it's getting healed by His very presence. That's that's what happens with Jesus, and 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 even Jesus Himself, as far as His reputation, you know they they you know he he takes a person who is, um, you know, I think he was paralyzed. Takes a person who's paralyzed, goes to the middle of the Sabbath, and he says, hey, is it against the law to heal on the Sabbath or not? And no one's answering him. He's like, you know, because really, what should we do? What, what better use of the Lord's day than to heal? Isn't that right? No one's answering him. And he's like, and he gets all, and it says he, he became furious. He's frustrated with them. And he stands them up in front of everybody, and he heals them. You know, and he could have waited till Monday. He didn't have to do that. That is a confrontive act where he's like, he could have done that privately, but he stands him up in front of everyone and goes, look, this is stupid. I'm going to heal this guy right now, and your laws that say I can't, those are ridiculous. I'm breaking those laws right now in front of you defiantly just to make a point, just to tick you off, just to, just to show that what you ought to be caring about is this person who's in need and not your stupid law. Because the idea of the law is that the law is supposed to be there to teach us to, like he says, the summation of the law is to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. But that's not what you're doing. You're using the law as a weapon to hurt other people. That's, that's legalism that, that kills. And so he's breaking the law and is seen as a lawbreaker and crucified as a lawbreaker. He's the perfect lawbreaker. Mm, mm. That's so good. You know, penal substitution seems to be built so much on that idea of Jesus being the perfect law keeper, because it's like, like what you said with Paul, it's so interesting. We so many times glaze right over that passage where Paul says, in regard to the law, I was blameless. And we say, you know, I used to say this all the time. Well, no one can keep the law. Well, Paul is saying right there in inspired scripture that he kept the law. (laughs) <laughs> he's saying I did keep it and I was still the worst of all sinners because we've made salvation this thing about it really has come down to the law that salvation is Jesus was perfect on my behalf and this is part of where the moral the the, the moralism kind of falls down for us Jesus was perfect on my behalf so I don't have to be can I in there for just a second absolutely so here's what I'd say to that. Um, I'm not sure. Remember where you're going with that, and we'll come back to that. But but what what I in the same way as it's not right to say, oh, okay, so God doesn't isn't mad at us, and therefore everything's fine. And I was saying before, no, it's not because we're sick and we need healing, and we actually have a real problem, and so it's not all fine, right? And so the idea that you know God cannot overlook sin, 
Well, yeah, that's right. He can't because it's sickness, and you can't overlook sickness. And in the same way here, you know, the the idea is, is the same kind of idea that um, I lost my train of thought. Help me out here. Oh, I got it. The 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 point is that Paul was a sinner. He kept the law perfectly, and he still was a sinner. So the idea that you know we can't keep the law that might be wrong, but the idea that we can't do it without God, that's right. You know, but it's, and, and so that's, that's an important distinction to make, that it's, is that yes, we need God. We need to be living in love with the Spirit, you know, in that loved relationship that we can't do it by ourselves. I think that's really right on. And the idea that Jesus is, you know, the reason that we need Jesus to be sinless, well, it's the same thing as, yeah, the, the reason we need to have this unconditional loving God in our hearts, guiding our lives, well, that's right on, you know? So it's, I think there's a lot of stuff, there's some stuff that's, it's not, it's not the whole baby in the bathwater thing. There's, I think it's just more of translating it into a different line of thought, but keeping that good stuff about how God is perfectly loving and sinless. But what does it mean to be sinless? It means to be focused on loving, focused on unconditionally loving people, regardless of what they are labeled as. That's what Jesus, that's how Jesus is holy. And that's, that's how Jesus is sinless is in that way, by being especially forgiving, especially loving. And that's what we need is to hang out with him and have our lives transformed by him. And that we can't buy ourselves, pick ourselves up for our bootstraps because Paul's basically saying, hey, I tried that whole thing and on paper looked really good, but I was a mess until I was living in the spirit. Do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you're right on, man. I think you're right on. You, you say that penal substitution fails to weigh the gravity of sin, that that you don't feel like. And what's ironic there is, you know, it, seem, it seems like when you read penal substitution um, theologians that they seem to make such a big deal of sin and say that it's people like you or I that make light of sin. What do you mean when you say that penal substitution fails to really take into account the full gravity of what sin is? So what penal substitution does is they make sin into something that is absurd. It's ridiculous. You know, the, the, this, actually that quote of you have failed to, um, to take into account the gravity of sin is a quote from Anselm. And the context where he says that quote is, if God told you to glance to the left and you didn't glance to the left, then you should be tormented in hell for all eternity because you broke that one command of God. And it's supposed to be like this great example. I'm like, that's horrible. <laughs> I mean, what kind of what kind of horrible? Per- it says more about the person who do that to you than it says about your disobedience. Tyrant would be so good gravy, right? And and here's the thing: they make it this silly problem that God has, where you're like, if you ever stole an orange, then you'll be tormented, and you know, then you're a thief. And if you ever told a fib once in your whole life when you were four, then you're going to go to hell forever because God's a holy God. And it's like, that's awful. But, and, and so we have this pretend version of sin where we have this guy, the idea of God being in heaven and having this problem, this anger problem, you know, where he just can't forgive because apparently he's never read the Bible and never read the Gospels. And then you have, but, but here's the reality though, we have our lives and if you just talk with anybody and just get to know them, you'll find out that we have all sorts of things that we're ashamed of and that we're hiding and that we wish nobody knew about us and that we're, you know, this, all this gunk 
in us, real problems that we're just like, please, somebody come and help me here. And, and, and that we don't need to make up some problem about an orange, you know, that, and, and frankly, I can be appalled. I have never stolen an orange ever, you know, check, you know, but, but we're all messed up, you know, we're all struggling and hurt and, and not just hurt as in that we hurt other people, but hurt that we have been hurt. That also separates us from God. You know, if you have some kind of horrible thing that happens to you or someone that you love, that can make you feel so cut off from God and separated from love. And so it's not just that when we're self-focused that we are cut off from relationships. It's also that when we're wounded, we're cut off from relationships. And that's why in the Gospels you see Jesus going to those people who have been cut off and, and ministering to them, but they miss that entirely. Like that, that whole concept is just absent, that that's something that God needs to heal as well. But that's something that's a real need in us that's unaddressed by them. And then secondly, they don't address, they, they, they miss the idea that the, the messed up things in our lives aren't just this trivial infraction. They're real things that we, that are deep seated problems that people have. And so I, that's what I mean by trivializing it. I, I think it's really serious and it needs to be addressed and healed and not just kind of this, oh, well, I have this legal form, and we sign this, so it's all good. Yeah, I, I, I so agree with you. I think that, I think it's almost like God becomes just, he becomes very, very petty. In the, to me, in penal substitutionary theory, God becomes really petty, and God, who is supposedly filled with love and filled with mercy, even in the Old Testament, um, becomes less tolerable of a pen dropping than I am. It's like, you know, I can, I can, my kids can poop on me and vomit on me. And like you said, wake me up at four o'clock in the morning and I can overlook it and not miss a step. But somehow God for just the most minor infraction gets really pissed off and not only wants to punish you, but is obligated by his own law to punish you. It, it's really a crazy thing to me. Um, you say that, in, in talking about this this um, this whole model of restorative justice and, and restorative atonement versus punitive atonement, that sin is more like a sickness than a crime. And I totally hear you there. I can hear, though, the thoughts of some people out there saying, well, by saying that sin is a sickness or a condition that you have instead of a crime or a transgression, that this is somehow going to take away personal responsibility and therefore, you can you get to have your cake and eat it too. You get to be forgiven, but it's not really your fault. Can you kind of address that and answer? Because I know there's going to be some people out there thinking that. Can you kind of address that question? Right. No, that's a legitimate concern, and that is not what I mean by saying that. Um, because, and the, the example I give is the way that we understand sickness nowadays is that, like, like the example you gave earlier about smoking, is your behavior influences your health. And so it does matter if you stopped smoking, then that would influence your health or diabetes, you know, and a whole, a whole bunch of other things are, are lifestyle related. And so that it doesn't follow from, you know, modern understandings of medicine to say, oh, just take a pill and everything's fine. That's not true. So I don't see how that must for that. And so what I'm saying is I'm not saying that there's no responsibility and it doesn't matter. And in fact, I'm actually trying to say the opposite. I'm saying it matters a lot, and that's why you need to really work on healing the problem and addressing the actual problem rather than sort of a trivial, superficial, legal solution that doesn't actually change anything internally. Um, so I'm trying to take it on a deeper level 
and take it more seriously and not less seriously. So if you at all hear anything implied that says, oh, this is going to say that it's, you know, just take a pill, it doesn't matter, then, then that's completely not at all the point of why I'm saying that it is a sickness as opposed to a crime. I'm saying that it's a sickness as opposed to a crime because I think that gives us a way of thinking about it that allows us to address it in a much, much deeper way that takes it much more seriously. Mm-hmm. Right on, right on. Uh, in in the, in this model of really healing atonement versus penal atonement, this really falls under the the big the big umbrella of Christus Victor, which um, you know we've talked about a lot on the podcast in the past about the Christus Victor view of the atonement, but but you really you really kind of nuanced that a little bit and said that Christus Victor is not really as much a theory of the atonement as it's a narrative theme expressed throughout the Bible in many different ways. Can you kind of give us the difference between what you see as being a theory of the atonement and why it's important to make that distinction and say that Christus Victor is really a narrative theme? Okay. Um, well, so what, let me start off with some, some pet peeves I have about how um, Christus Victor is understood by reform folks. Okay. And one of those is the idea that it's a victory motif. Okay, because, hey, Chris is victor, so it must be a victory motif, and they will find the places where it says, you know, Christ is victorious, and they'll go, oh, that's Chris's victor theme. No, it's not. And I don't know why Gustav Aulain called it that, but I think it's really badly named. Um, so here's what I would say. The, the, the characteristic um, characteristics of, of Chris's victor are, are two things. One is the idea of healing, and the other one is the idea of liberation. Those are the two themes that you see the church fathers continually coming back to. And so when um, Aulain and, and others refer to Chris's victor as the classic view of the atonement that you're seeing in the church fathers, that's what they're saying, right? They don't say, I will now tell you Chris's victor theory. But they have these themes that they're continually bringing back to of how they frame. So you could say that there might be a legal theme in, you know, Western theology. But in, in their theology, the themes are um, the great physician, healer. You know, the, and, and then the other theme is liberation, of being rescued. And there they have this whole picture of the devil who's kept us in captivity and us being freed of that bondage because of Christ. And, you know, and I, I think if you want to translate, that, that's, that, that's hard for a lot of people to, you know, maybe, I, maybe you and I have like this charismatic background. And so we're like, no problem there. But there's other people who might be like, wait, what? And that sounds really hard to, like, what, what do you mean devil? Um, but I think that the, the gist of what they're talking about and getting the gravity of what's being said has to do with, again, say like the bondage of addiction, you know, where it just like devastates and dominates your life. And so that's, that's, those are the two themes that they're talking about. And the second thing that irks me is they talk about this being a minor theme because they'll find a verse and they'll go, oh, this verse seems to have a victory motif in there. And they'll kind of go, yeah, sure, there's a victory motif, um, but... It's sort of a minor theme, and the, really the big theme is, is this one of penal substitution. But what they miss, again, is the, what you were getting at is the narrative. That the narrative is we begin with the Exodus, which is a story about God liberating his people from bondage. And that becomes the story that all through the Old Testament they're continually going back to and, and remembering the Exodus and hoping in the Exodus and saying, now, now we're in exile and we hope that Again, that you, as you rescued your people here and you liberated us, will you please come and restore us now? Will you liberate us? That moves into their hope for the Messiah, that they hope that they would be 
rescued by the Messiah, and you know Jesus refers to the um, the Passover, you know, the which is sort of like the new Exodus. This this idea of and the Passover is from the Exodus, right? And it's this idea of so it's again that story of liberation. His his words that he uses of um, ransoming, and um, and that is a term that refers to not only slavery, but the con- for him that context of ransoming Israel, rans- ransoming captive Israel, that story that was so much the part of their shaping story, that's Chris's victor. That's that theme of being liberated. And so it's, it's a really huge, huge picture. And, 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 and the way that Jesus comes as the Messiah, he comes healing. He comes restoring and, 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 and that healing, I think, is connected with liberating. It's not healing or liberating. It's that you, when you're set free from your sickness um, or from your mental illness that's you know, debilitating, then you're liberated from that. You're free to be yourself. That's why they're rejoicing about this. You know? And so I think that's, that it becomes all through the Old Testament, all through the Gospels, this big, big story that's sort of just underlying everything that's happening. It seems like what you're saying is that um, as I'm hearing you talk, it just really reminds me of something you said in the book that really Christus Victor is less about the mechanics of the atonement, the how, you know, the how of the atonement as much as the story of atonement. That atonement wasn't just this one thing that happened in Jesus but that the culmination of atonement happened in Jesus. It's almost like with as evangelicals, um, we've grown up kind of, you know, looking at looking at the atonement as this one act that happened a few hours on a Friday two thousand years ago, instead of looking at Jesus as falling smack dab into the story of Israel and actually embodying Israel, becoming the new Israel and taking that Exodus story upon himself and living out that story of Exodus so that the atonement is this grand theme, this grand story that we find ourselves in and not so much about kind of the pulling back the curtains and watching the the cogs and the wheels turn on how exactly did we get forgiven? Was it expiation first or propitiation? You know, that, that whole conversation. Well, I mean, honestly, too, it is a little bit difficult because... You say, oh, it's healing. And you're like, wait a minute. Why would Jesus being crucified be healing? That doesn't sound right. And so it is hard to like figure out like how the mechanics of this work. But I think what's really important is you need to first get what are we talking about? And then we can start talking about mechanics. But you need to understand first, you know, look at the Bible and how does it understand, um, you know, salvation and what's happening? And then go, okay, that's what we're talking about, you know, that's that's the thing. Now we can go back and try to like pick it apart and figure out the mechanics. Although I've got to say that honestly, we don't need to know the mechanics. I mean, we need to know what do I need to do to, to, do to be saved. That's what I need to know. I need to know how I can be entered into a relationship with God, and I need to understand what God is doing and what the nature of who God is and how to trust God and everything, and, and get that God isn't you know get stuff like God doesn't hate me and God isn't trying to hurt me but God is grace, get those big points, get that. And if I don't get exactly the mechanics of how he does it, it's kind of like, I don't get how my phone works, but I can still use my phone, you know? And so I, I think we need to differentiate that we don't even, I, I, I know I do try to understand it and in the book try to like do my best to explain it, but 
that's not the essential thing. The essential thing is to get God's heart and to have that heart as well. That's, that's really what matters and not the mechanics. The mechanics are incidental and secondary. And it's almost like, you know, in understand, trying to understand the mechanics, you know, it's all a matter of it's your starting point. Because if you do start with that view of sin as crime, then the mechanics are going to look way, way different than if you look at the starting point being sin as sickness. Because the prescription for sin as crime is totally different than the prescription for sin as sickness. Um, so, I, yeah, I'm in complete agreement with you there. You really... Um, you seem to really be influenced a lot by the works of Walter Wink. I know you talk in the book some about the authorities and the law and, and, and this kind of thing. Um, and a lot of people on the podcast that are, that are hearing this probably aren't familiar with Walter Wink or, or, you know, some of the things that he brought to bear, um, in a conversation like this, um, to kind of open this up about the authorities and the law, you say that the work of Christ addresses corporate and structural sin as much as individual sin, which this sounds very Winkian. <laughs> Can you kind of introduce our audience to what you're saying there? Because for, for most of us, we've grown up with this idea, especially post-enlightenment, we've grown up with this idea that the atonement and salvation is all about individual sin being forgiven and individual sinners being restored. So how does the work of Christ address corporate and structural sin and how do we even recognize, because most of us, I don't think, have even recognized that there is such a thing as structural sin. Okay, well, let's talk about what structural sin is, first of all. So just we're, you know, knowing what it is, we're, what, what the problem is we're solving again. Um, so you could have, for example, a, um, a structural sin would maybe be, say, uh, child labor um, somewhere where you have like this uh, factory where they have, you know, and, and you might have a person who's there who is, I don't know, let's make them Christian and they're moral and they have a Bible study and they're, they're kind to their workers. And yet, or actually, let's make it a little bit more realistic. Um, slavery, right? I could be a kind Christian slaveholder and nice to my slaves. But the problem is not just that, but the institution of slavery. And, 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 and so changing the the manager in the factory doesn't change the system. The system that makes those kids still have to come in there and work like 19 hours a day, you know, and live in, in hovels and and be malnourished, even if I might be kind to them, that structure isn't isn't changed. And so it's not just enough. And, and it's also not changed because maybe I don't have the power to change it as one person, you know. Um, I stand up against that and I get kicked down too. So there's structural problems, and then there's individual problems, and we need to be addressing both of those things. You know, if we want to, if we want to take on the problem of sin, sin is a lot bigger than just individuals. And the idea that if we just get all the individuals to be good, that suddenly the structures will change is not necessarily true. You have to change. I mean, you could decide to change the structure since we're all good now in that scenario, but you would have to do that. You'd have to look at what the structure is and how it's set up and see how it's hurting people and, and address that. And I think, and what Wink is saying is that when Paul talks about the powers and authorities and he talks about the idea of um, taking on the problem of sin as opposed to sins, you know, the singular sin, that he's talking about the, the power of sin, the power of death, the power of hell, and 
an, an empire. So there's a, there's been a lot of talk, you know, in theological circles about empire, and that's along the same lines of Jesus is not only addressing, and Paul too is not only addressing individual stuff, but they're addressing the system. And and also look at what Jesus is doing all the time. He's talking to the religious authorities. He's addressing the system. Seems like the that what we've dubbed the cleansing of the temple, that that's really what Jesus is doing is he's addressing a structural sin, a sin that goes beyond one or two Pharisees or one or two worshipers, but just this whole institutional greed and this um, the power brokers of religion and all this kind of thing that he's just completely going in there and, and tearing that whole thing down as maybe an example of what you're saying. Yeah, example. One of the things that you really wanted to make sure that we stressed in this conversation is that people understand that the cross is a demonstration of nonviolence, not a vindication of state violence, which I think really falls in this conversation about the authorities and about understanding structural sin and this kind of thing. Can you kind of speak to maybe how, um, because once again, I know for me, I, I'm, I, I just go back through my own spiritual journey and the things I've read over the last few years and the things I've learned. And, you know, this was a, this was a whole, this was never addressed in my evangelical upbringing. The idea that the cross could ever be a vindication of state violence. This was totally a foreign concept to me until just a few years ago for, for our listeners that maybe, maybe have never even heard such a proposition put out there. Can you kind of explain what you mean by that about the cross the cross, not how it can be used as a vindication of state violence and how it's actually a critique of that and maybe maybe how we make sure it remains that way. Um, well, if we look at just the historical context of Roman crucifixion, that is violence. That is the state killing someone, executing a criminal. And that's what happened to Jesus. And so Jesus is accused of being a criminal and executed by the state on a torture device called a, cruci- uh, you know, a crucifix. And so that's the actual historical context of this. And we have, you know, oh, the cross, the wondrous cross and everything. You have to understand that there's irony in that. You know, it's, 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 and, and we kind of miss that. We're so used to it being the wondrous cross that we miss that this is like a a torture device. It, it's, it's worse than the electric chair because it was, it, it's just, it was excruciating and, and tormenting and horrible and, and shaming of the person. They're put up there naked in the middle, you know, displayed, you know, there to, to die. I and mean, wow, it's just awful. And this is, this is Rome. This isn't, you know, this, this isn't some wonderful thing of justice and everything. It's awful. And that's why in the gospels it's portrayed as this awful thing. And the disciples are not saying, hallelujah, justice is being done because our Lord is being crucified. I'm so happy about this. And, you know, his mom's crying and his disciples are are scared and fleeing and freaking out and going, no, you know, and trying to fight against it and everything. They are not pleased about this. And of course they're not, you know, because their best friends are getting killed by the state who they don't think of as the Romans as, yep, they're the exact, I think, I think of righteousness and I think of justice that they're oppressed. They're horrible. They're monsters. And so the monsters took their beloved Jesus and are killing him. And that's why they're all after the after the, the cross, they're they're hiding and they're scared and you know, and that 
context, and we forget that context, and we need to remember that context. You know, and, and Peter in his um, sermon says, you know, with the help of wicked men, you crucified the Lord of glory, but God raised him from the dead. You know, these, these two contrasting things that this is what you did, and this is what God did. You did this wicked thing of unjustly killing Jesus, and God undid that, undid that verdict by raising him from the dead. And so that's, that's that context of when you say that, you know, penal substitution, when you say that this is what they did to him, they, they whipped him and they beat him. And like, just think of like the Passion of Christ and that, that violent movie and think about that. And, and penal substitution is basically saying, yep, God did that. You know, and the question is really, where was God? Was God on the side of the Romans or was he on the side of Jesus during that time? I think he was on the side of Jesus. I think he was with Jesus who was being unjustly killed. And, and also think too, do we really want to say that when, think about this, how horrible, how, how could you trust and love someone when this is what you're saying about, about this person, about God, is Jesus is beaten, humiliated, whipped, struck in the face, you know, um, has his clothes torn off of his body and hung on a cross. And you know what? God wanted to do all of that to you wanted to humiliate you, kill you, beat the living crap out of you, and spit on you. Wow. That is just staggering to imagine. How can you sit lap ever thinking? Let, let me ask you, Derek, um, since you brought that up, because this is one of the things I really want to cover that I really loved in the book, is how you point out it seems like penal substitutionary theory is built on the idea that justice would have required those things that were done to Jesus to have been done to us. That justice demanded that that be done to sinners and that Jesus just simply stepped in, stepped in between us and God and took the blow on our behalf. And you really point out the fallacy that penal substitution is built on, this fallacy of penal substitution being just. And really show how Isaiah 53, in particular, really undermines the idea of penal substitution being just. And instead, that the cross is really a perversion of justice, not the righteous requirement of the law. Can you kind of speak to Isaiah 53? Because I know I talked with Brad when we talked about stricken by God to Brad Jerzak about this Isaiah 53 passage, because this is one of the big stumbling blocks for people as they try and escape the model of penal substitution. Because Isaiah 53, in part, almost seems to endorse an idea of penal substitution, especially like in verses 5 and 6, where it talks about the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, and it pleased the Lord to, to bruise him, bring him to grief, you know, all those kinds of things. Can you kind of speak to Isaiah 53 and and demonstrate to us how it actually undermines the justice of penal substitution and shows that it's really an unjust thing. I mean, I think that the the real simple thing that people need to do is read the whole chapter, you know, and, and look at what it's talking about. Like, really read it. And what you see there is it's a story of, of injustice happening. You're supposed to think, that it begins by saying, who could believe this message? Who can imagine this thing happening? Because it's so crazy, you know? And, and so it's a story about someone who is being accused of being bad 
and rotten and because they are afflicted and sick and so we're damning them. And then we realize that no, it's 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 wrong. It's us. We're the ones. And we're the ones who are um you know who are guilty. We're the ones who are crushing. And it, it, it and I'm trying to I'm see if I could find the passage here. Um it says here, this is a uh, verse seven. Um he was oppressed and afflicted. Um but, and then skipping down, um, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Right? That is not a picture of justice. What's happening to him? What's happening to him is oppression and judgment. Okay? And it's this, uh, the, NS, the NRSV renders this by a perversion of justice, he was taken away, is their translation of this. A perversion of justice. So that's the, and if, and if you read, that's not just one verse we're talking about. If, if you read, just pick it up and read the whole chapter. And, it's really clear that the picture they have there is this awful hand over your mouth wrong thing that's happening. And that's exactly how the Gospels portray the crucifixion as this wrong thing that's happening. And the realization is it's supposed to be a lament. It's supposed to point back at us and say, look what you're doing. You know? and, and I think that, again, it's supposed to be not um, you are the woman who was the adulterous woman and you're being punished for it. I think that's not the scenario. I think the scenario is you're the mob and you're the ones who are accusing. You're the Pharisees who are calling these people bad, but actually you're bad, you know? And, 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 and because that's what happens. The, the, the Christians, the early Christians are drawing on this and recognizing they're going, hey, they're seeing in Jesus a story, this story, and they're getting and they're going, yeah, that pulling out this one chapter and quoting it like over and over again because they recognize us in Jesus. So I think that the way that we need to interpret this, if we want to understand how they're seeing that is look at the gospels, look at the way that they understand um, what happened in Jesus and then read Isaiah 53 in that light. And I think that we completely miss it when we make it about that one verse that says he was pierced by our transgressions and yet it was the Lord's will. I think the way I'd understand that is similar to Peter's statement, you know, where Peter says, you, by the help of wicked men, crucified the Lord's glory, and yet God in his foreknowledge had a plan. This was, and it's, so it's this, it's this, at the same time, it's both, it's an evil, horrible act of people, and yet God is working in that and overcoming that evil and turning it into something good. I think that's the dynamic of what's happening here. Not that God's the whole time going, yeah, give me a stick too, you know, but that, that God is, you know, the, the, the story of it is, is it Joseph, that you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good, you know, when his brothers do this, all this horrible stuff, and it gets turned around because he shows them forgiveness. I think it's one of those kind of stories. Joseph is such a top of Christ. Anyway, anyway that's, that's such a good example. You know, I think that, um, I think a lot of that comes down to the difference between orchestration and, you know, taking a lemon and making it into, you know, lemonade. Because <laughs> it's almost like penal substitution has this grand orchestration where God uses evil men to do really his bidding. Um, whereas the view that, that you're espousing really seems to say God took our violence, turned our violence on its head, and even in the midst of our violence, used our crazy violence to turn it into a good thing that in the end would actually heal us of that same violence, which I just think is beautiful. I'm right on the same page with you. Um, the word vicarious, you know, that's in penal substitution. That's such a buzzword, vicarious suffering, vicarious atonement. 
you have a really different understanding of vicarious than the traditional um, Latin view or Reformed view or all these views um, that come and, and bring penal substitution to the fore. Can you kind of speak to what you think the word vicarious means and how we might have misunderstood that word? I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit, I have to say, a little bit uneasy about the word. Because I do realize that it can be interpreted in different ways, and I kind of just was like trying to pick some word, and so I was like, "Oh, vicarious, I'll pick this one," because there's sort of a history of other theologians using that word when they want to say, "Yes, there's this idea of Jesus being with us and dying for us, but not instead of us." That they would oftentimes pick. So there's a history of using that word, but it is a problematic word um, because it kind of means the same thing. It is really, if you look at just the, you look it up in the dictionary, it's not any different. It's just more the, the history of how it's used. But I guess what I would want to say is that, kind of like Moltmann, I think I'm influenced really heavily by Moltmann here, the idea that God in Christ enters into our brokenness and wretchedness and hurtfulness and hurtness and sickness and blackness and it's with us there. And that's the idea of incarnation, really, but to the point of death, you know. And God is with us in that. And so that is solidarity. That is, that is the idea of Christ dying for us, that he's for us, you know, not instead of us, but beneficial, you know, the bene, beneficial. It's, 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 he's on our side. It's, he's, he's, he's there with us in our hurt. He's there by our side. Solidarity and participation, but also the other way around, too, that not only does Christ enter into our lives, but we enter into Christ's life. That it doesn't say that Christ dies, and so we don't have to. It says, you know, if you're my follower, then pick up your cross and follow me. And it says that, you know, Christ dies, and then we enter into that death through baptism, and then, you know, resurrection, that we follow in that same way. And so we die with Christ. You know, that's, 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 that's actually what Paul says over and over again. That's, you know, that's the main theme is with dying with. So participation in Christ being, you know, the idea of having a cruciform life. Yeah, really, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. The whole instead of idea, when you, when you read Paul's epistles and over and over again, he talks about, you know, I die daily or I fill up in my, in my body, what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ or Jesus saying, take up your cross and follow me. I mean, none of those things, you have a hard time reconciling those things with an idea that Jesus died instead of you. Yeah. You know, rather than with you. Yeah. I, I, I love what you're saying there. I want to kind of uh, wrap up our time together by talking about just a statement that you said, which I just loved um, because we have been, we, we've been taught a whole different way of understanding the atonement. For instance, you say that the death sentence is not fulfilled, it is erased. Sin is destroyed, not appeased, and the law is abolished, not fulfilled. These are the total opposites of what we've been taught with penal substitution. I mean, we've been taught that the death sentence had to be fulfilled in Jesus, and yet you're saying that God actually erased that death sentence by taking it into himself that sin we we've we've uh, we've actually looked at sin as god had to be appeased on behalf of our sin instead of jesus destroyed the whole root of sin and the, and the big one for me is going back to that 
perfect law keeper scenario. We've looked at the law as it had to be fulfilled, you know, that, that Jesus had to keep every jot and tittle. And, you know, we even quote Jesus as saying that, not, you know, no jot or tittle will pass away from the law till all these things are fulfilled. And yet you're right. When you read the epistles, it's saying, I mean, Galatians says it clearly that the law has been abolished. Can you talk about kind of this transition and understanding and, and, um, how did you get there, Derek? What was, what was the journey like for you to get from, did you start out with this understanding of penal substitution and how did you come to understand this in the way that we, that we've talked about? Well, let me, let me first, um, come address the idea that, that you were just from that quote. Um, and then I can, then I can come back to, to my own story about what I'm saying there is, I guess it's that idea of understanding the the difference between saying, um, you know, how we understand holiness and redefining that by looking at Jesus. And this here too is is this redefinition of stuff. So what I'm saying is that everything can be fallen, including our concepts of justice can be fallen. And so it's not that God is taking the good idea of justice and throwing that out the window because God doesn't care about justice, but rather he's taking the messed up idea of justice, which is, I think, a messed up idea of justice is retributive justice is a messed up idea of justice. It's it's a thing of the flesh. I'm fleshly, and so I get it, but it's still flesh. And it's a messed up idea of, of justice, just like, you know, lust is a messed up idea of, you know, sexual intimacy. And so we have, think about, What's, what's pulling people away from God? What makes people leave Christianity and want to have nothing to do with God? And I got to say, a big one is penal substitution. It's this idea that God hates you and condemns you and is this angry, horrible, scary, abusive, petty God. I mean, the whole, um, what's the guy's name, the, the atheist guy, Stephen something or whatever, where he wrote, like, God is not good? Oh, yeah, uh, Christopher Hitchens. Yeah, he's an angry guy, right? But what is he responding to? He's responding to that picture of God. And there's something right about him going, no, no, I'd rather go to hell than, than you know, I'd rather be, have nothing than that God. I mean, I got to say, me too. I don't. Derek, uh, I, I watched a YouTube video. I've watched some YouTube videos with uh, Christopher Hitchens debating some Christians. And I find myself constantly when I watch him in these debates, I consistently go, you know what? I don't believe in the God that you don't believe in either because all of the things he lists are what you're talking about. And I go, you know what? If that's who I thought God was, I would probably be an atheist by now too. And and so with that, you know, I can see how people, myself included, hear that and get kind of mad at them. You know, like, what? You know, what are you saying? But if you hear past the anger and hear into the hurt and hear of like, what? And, and, and imagine someone else who isn't going to take a microphone and isn't going to, but they're just going to be like, I was really devastated by that picture of God. And that's why I, I had to leave for my own sanity, for, you know, so I wouldn't hate myself. And, you know, think about that person. So we have this picture of God that's really, really hurtful. And that's what I'm saying, that 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 the gospel's coming in and saying, you know, the way the Pharisees are destroying people's lives and and blocking people from the kingdom of heaven and from love and everything. No, that's wrong. And it's, and it's opposing that and undoing that and, and subverting that. And, you know, it's, 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 it's an affront. 
it's an attack on that. And that's, that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that it's against justice, real justice. I'm saying that it's against a fake, hurtful justice that destroys, because that's the whole idea of the devil, which Calvinism, I don't get it why they don't seem to have ever heard of the devil, but they seem to leave the devil completely out. In other words, with that, they leave out the idea of how things can be fallen, not just us, but stuff. Our ideas can be fallen. It's like, oh, we can be fallen, but my ideas are perfect, and that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, the, the the bizarre thing here, Derek, that I think as I was reading your book, I was sitting there going, the ironic thing is I find myself more and more moving away from the Augustinian idea of original sin. And yet the the way I'm understanding the, the track that you and I are on by by saying even your ideas can be fallen, not just people, not just you know, not just humans, but everything that humanity touches can be fallen. It sounds like we have a more, a greater concept of original sin in some ways and a more thoroughgoing concept of original sin than the Reformation guys do, you know? Yeah, no, I, I totally know what you mean. And yeah, there's something that's very good about that idea when it has to do with being introspective and recognizing our shortcomings and recognizing the shortcomings of our society and all the things that we think of are like, you know, untouchable, that's actually really healthy, I think. It's just kind of the being super down and you're to kind of see it with love, you know, see ourselves with love, but also honestly, and also see our society with love, but also honesty, you know. Yeah, great stuff. Great stuff. All I got to say, folks, is you got to get the book. This is 108 pages of great, great stuff, Derek. I, I've read all sorts of books on the atonement. Um, and I got to say, you really, in 108 pages, you brought together some things that I had never considered as to why it's so important for us to get this right. Why it's so important for us to, when I say get it right, not to completely understand how all this works, but to get it right about the character of God. Why it's so important for us to get who God is right. Because if we don't get that part right, then everything else that we do, everything else that we theologize about, whether it be hell or atonement or um, just how we treat each other, nonviolence and all these kinds of things, we're going to get those wrong too. So I want to strongly, strongly encourage you, pick up Healing the Gospel. Go visit therebelgod.com, which is Derek's blog, his website. You can find out more about the book there. I got to say, Derek, I've loved some of the work you've done lately on your blog with um, answering some of the questions that have come from the book. You've had some questions up there and you're just giving really, really great responses. And I just want to applaud you for that. I so appreciate the work you're doing, man. Keep it up. And folks, go support Derek and grab that book and uh, get in contact with him and tell him how much you appreciate him being on the podcast. Derek, thank you so, so much for this time together. Thank you. It's been a really great time and I've loved the conversation. We got to do it some more, man. Great, great, great podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed that. So much food for thought. And, you know, so much of this is ground that we've covered before, but from new angles. And I just really feel like Derek, in this book, I've read so many books on nonviolent atonement and reunderstanding the atonement and critiques of penal substitution. But Derek's book just really took it from a different angle that I felt was really, really helpful, at least for me. And I hope it was for you or hope it will be for you guys. And I hope the conversation was helpful for you as well. Derek, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I just really enjoy talking to you, brother. Really enjoy picking your heart, picking your brain. 
great, great stuff. Thanks so much. And guys, thank you for listening. Uh, just really, this community is so awesome. You guys just don't know how much it means to me and to Steve to log on to Facebook or to jump on the website and see the great interaction that you guys are are having with the podcast episodes, with each other, with threads that you're starting. It's just awesome. I love this community. So thank you guys so much for being a part of it. Um, I'm going to give you the normal drill. You guys know how to get in touch with us probably. Go to the website, beyondtheboxpodcast.com. Leave your comments, your questions, your idea submissions, anything you want to say on that website, you're welcome to do so. And while you're there, if you want to look for the widget on the right-hand side of the homepage, it's called a Call Me widget. And when you click that, you can type in your phone number and our answering service will call you back and let you leave a comment, a suggestion, a um, an intro to our episode where you can say, hi, my name is Ray and this is Beyond the Box. Or hi, my name is Sue and this is Beyond the Box. So anything you want to leave on there, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you want to call that number directly, you can dial 626-24-NO-BOX. That's 626-246-6269. You can also sign up for our Twitter feed at twitter.com slash Podcast. This is probably the first place that notifies everyone when a new episode is out. So that's, that's a great way of uh, getting a really quick scoop on when we release a new episode. And last but definitely not least is our Facebook page, facebook.com slash beyond the box. This is a great, great place to, to just dive right into the community that is beyond the box. We don't just consider this a podcast. This really is a community. Beyond the box has really developed into a community. And so I just really want to encourage you, if you're on Facebook, definitely log on there, um, go to our page, put anything on there you want to. If you want to start a new thread with an idea that you're thinking about or something the Lord's stirring in your heart, by all means, do that. Or if you want to jump into a conversation that you see going on on the Facebook page, do that as well. We would love to hear from you. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. Derek, once again, thank you, brother. Really appreciate everything you that you've said in this podcast and just taking the time to be with us. And guys, if you get a chance, make sure to go check out Derek's book, Healing the Gospel. I think you'll really, really enjoy it. Until next time, everybody, this is Beyond the Box. You guys have a great week. Later. Later.